And that is a lot of work. And it is a lot of change, every single sentence in a novel. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's better and stronger, and I think I'm better and stronger for it. So that's, you know, one of the people I thought of in kind of preparing for helping him with this message was J.K. Rowling, is it Rowling or Rowling, who uh, wrote Harry Potter. Uh, the story is something like 70 rejections, and then she kept working and working 70 rejections before Harry Potter. So okay. there's a lot of failure and rejection in the process of being a human being. Well, John Grisham would be another example another of example. A, yeah, who yeah. got a lot of rejections. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I get the privilege of witnessing you receive those letters. And it sort of gloomy me around our house for a couple of hours after those letters come, or have come. But um, I also get to, to witness you working hard every day, every day on rewriting that. Um, as I said, we're going to look at the two little books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And uh, just so you know, just I find these things interesting. Um... Throughout the entire Old Testament period and the New Testament period, literally until the Middle Ages, there was no such books as Ezra and Nehemiah. There was just one book, and it was called Ezra and Nehemiah. And that was the, that was the name of the book. So for 1500, it, it was 1,500 years later that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was turned into two books. Didn't do any damage to it, uh, you know, but it, what I, the reason I think that's not only interesting but important is that Ezra, Nehemiah were written by one author, one human author, and they, it was one story and it is to be read and studied and pondered as one story. It was never designed to be two separate stories. So I think that's important for us to keep in mind. Um, it was, uh, it, it, it accounts for, or recounts, I guess I should say, a, a moment in the history of Israel where they have been in Babylonian captivity for almost 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, now they are coming back from Babylon to the promised land, and we're going to, I'll tell you a little bit of detail about that in a minute. But, um, so it's near the end of the Babylonian uh, captivity, and uh, uh, it's, it is a, a moment in the history of Israel as they are told, you can go back home, where there is incredible excitement, incredible optimism, incredible hope that all of the things that God had been promising Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and then the prophets that were right before the captivity occurred like Isaiah and Jeremiah all these promises of a new day that God is going to re restore to Israel all that they 
once possessed and experienced, and then much more. So it's a, it's a, it's a very high time of excitement, okay? So let me, let me give you a little background here. Basically, from the time of Moses until the time of the Babylonian captivity, which would have been Jeremiah. From Moses to Jeremiah, God had been constantly warning the people of Israel that if you don't focus on your relationship with me, you don't prioritize my priorities, and if you don't take seriously your calling that I've placed upon your lives to be a source of blessing to those who have not been blessed like you have. If you neglect those things, you ignore those things, you, you minimize those things, terrible consequences are going to result from that. And in 586 B.C., um, the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar marched into southern Israel, ruined the nation of Israel for all practical, economic, social, cultural purposes, um, uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and most tragically for the Israelites, destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. And then just about everyone that they didn't kill, they towed it off to captivity in Babylon. And that occurred in 586 B.C. And God had been telling them uh, since Moses that this was going to happen. And then through the prophet Jeremiah in particular, God had told them in advance how long they were going to be there. Around 70 years. And so it happened. Now what's important is if you go back and look at all those warnings that God gave His people, that if they didn't focus on their relationship with Him, the priorities that God had revealed to them, and most importantly, His priority for them to be a blessing to people that had not been blessed like they had, that this was going to happen, but every time he, made, he gave them that warning, he also gave them a promise of hope that my love, my power, and my grace are greater than your sin and your enemies. And that while if you ignore me and what I've told you a, a million times, the consequences will occur. But I'm going, I'm bigger than the consequences. I'm bigger than your enemies. I'm bigger than your sin. And there will be a day of restoration, a day of healing, a, a day of redemption that will undo what you've messed up. And 70 years later, amazingly, God told him it was going to be 70 years, and dead gummit, God ran, you know, how in the world does this happen? But God was right. And 70 years later, actually a few years earlier, 
Another nation, the Persians, rose to power, conquered Babylon, and they did something that was, it was the first time in human history, at least recorded history, that a nation, a conquering nation did this. Um, Cyrus was the dude's name that was leading the Persians at the time, and he made an edict. He said, if you are a people group that had been conquered by the Babylonians and departed, departed, deported to other parts of the Babylonian Empire, if you want to, you can go back home. Wasn't just to the Jewish people, it was to any conquered group. Cyrus had this idea that if I let people go back to their lands and they promise to be loyal and they promise to get their priest to pray their God's blessings on me, I'll have more unity, more success ruling all these cultures than the Babylonians had had. And so that's exactly what he did. Part of that process was that Cyrus told the Jews, you can go back home. And so, a few years after 586, I mean, 70 years later, um, uh, uh, there were three groups of Jews led by three different leaders over a period of time, and they went back home. They led a group, a large group of people, back to Israel. The first group was led by a dude named Zerubbabel. And his mandate was, I'm going to lead some Israelites, anybody that wants to go, I'm going to lead them back home, and we're going to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. The, the temple that Solomon built and had been destroyed by the Babylonians, we're going to rebuild that temple. Now that was a big, that was far more significant to them than it would be to us from the perspective that if you just understand how a Jewish person would have thought in that day, what took place at the temple? Main thing that took place at the temple, sacrifices for the sins of the nation. If there was no temple, you could not offer sacrifices. And if there were no sacrifices, that means there was no forgiveness. And if there was no forgiveness, the wrath of God was still heavy upon our people. And so for them, this idea that we're going to go back and we're going to rebuild, the very first thing they did, even before they built the temple, the building, they rebuilt the altar so that the priest could start offering sacrifices and experience God's forgiveness and God's favor and remove the wrath of God. Now that's the way they saw it. That's the way they thought about it. And so uh, uh, Zerubbabel leads a group of people back to the promised land and they uh, begin the process of rebuilding the temple. Fifty years later, give or take, all these are give or takes, okay? But many years later, Another group was, went back to the promised land, and that was a group that was led by Ezra. Ezra was a priest, and his main gifting was he was a teacher. He taught God's word. And the people of Israel, between Zerubbabel coming and when Ezra went, the moral 
condition of the people had really declined. They were discouraged. They were depressed. Things were not going well. And so Ezra said, well, I'll lead a group of people back and we'll turn this thing around. And so Ezra led a group of people back. A few years later, another uh, bad or discouraging word got back to, to uh, Persia. And uh, uh, it was that the, the, the city of Jerusalem was basically still in utter destruction. The destruction that the Babylonians had wreaked upon the, the, the city of Jerusalem, nobody had done anything about it. And so a fellow named Nehemiah, uh, who was a very unique individual in that he was a political dude. He was a part of the uh, Persian government, and he was actually uh, a very influential man, and so influential that literally one of his main jobs was that before the king of Persia would drink any drinks, he would taste it first to make sure it wasn't poison. Because back then, well, nothing's changed. Political leaders had enemies, right? And so um, he was the, the man that tasted the king's wine, probably his food too, before the king would eat it. And so Nehemiah, he led another group of people back. So they went back. The one group uh, under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, another group under Ezra to, to build morale and focus and, 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 and energy, another group led by Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. If you read those two books quickly, you don't ponder it. You're going to walk away missing one of the key messages throughout those two books. What you're going to walk away with if you read it too quickly is, wow, there were problems for the people of God. God sent these three leaders uh, uh, leading groups of Israelites and they went back and they changed everything for good. In fact, Colton, I'll bet you've read numerous books on leadership based upon Ezra and Nehemiah. If you just follow the, the, the leadership principles of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll do great. You'll have great success. Truth is, if you read those two little books very carefully, what you discover is that there were a lot of problems that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah encountered and uh, tried to work through. There were a lot of enemies, a lot of obstacles. Um, there was a lot of failure. Every one of those three men, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read the books carefully, they made a lot of mistakes. They were the men of God. They were the leaders of God's people. And yet, each of those men made some really strategic mistakes that caused some real failure. I'm not saying they weren't great men. I'm not saying they didn't do great things. And I'm not saying that God didn't use them. I'm not saying that they didn't love the Lord. 
All I'm not suggesting, all I'm declaring is that really the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give us a picture of life as it is. Life is full of challenges. Life is full of obstacles. Life is full of enemies. Life is full of decisions, some of which we look back later and go, it! look who I chose to marry. Look who I chose to marry. When? Look at what my grandson's not sitting there anymore. He's in there. I made, I've made choices that, that led up to having this wonderful grandson. I've made choices that led up to me being a part of a church like this. I've made good choices that created good results. And we all can identify choices and moments and experiences that we look back and go, Dead gummit, I'm glad. I'm thankful, and if I could do it again, I'd do the same way. But that's not true of everything that goes on in our lives. There are also moments and experiences and choices that we look back on and we go, Oh my gosh, I was so rash. I invested such little prayer and I got such little, if any, counsel. I reacted and I responded in that situation in ways that, oh, I wished I could go back and do it differently. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah communicate. Good men trying to do good things, but they faced great obstacles and they created great problems because they were rash and fearful and prayerless. Yes, they experienced some successes, but also a lot of failures. And you read those two little books carefully and you walk away asking what I think the author was asking, and that is, was it worth it? Did I, when I look at my life, and maybe it's because of where I am right now in my life, maybe that's why I'm thinking about this so much, but I look back over the last 42 years, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they looked back over their lives, and I wonder if they did not, I know they did, they asked the question, was it worth it? Did I make a difference? I look at the amount of investment and I'm wondering if was the return satisfactory? And I think everybody in this room in some way or another asks those kinds of questions and thinks about those kinds of things. So, just without, you, you see my point, whether it's my marriage, whether it's my parenting, whether it's my business, whether it's my health, whether it's my friendships, whether it's my spiritual journey, I invested. I spent time and energy. I fought battles. I experienced obstacles and pain. I went through failures and I had some successes. Was it worth it? Did it make a difference?
Would I live the same life over again if I could? Please. It's such a universal thing, right? I mean, we know our own failures and, and we're surprised at the failures of others sometimes, but we know, I think, um, if, we, if we are people who, who think deep down, we understand this. Uh, and it's funny because at school, um, I'm chair of the English department and all that really means is that I get all the complaints. <laughs> and so I often will get com a, a concerned parent from a child moving from middle school to upper, upper school. And the mother will look at the list of books and she, and, and, and this complaint comes or this question comes more often than you might think. And she'll say, well, I don't understand why the girls have to read so many difficult negative books. Why can't we read positive, more positive books? And I'll say, well, do you have a suggestion for a positive book? You know, and yet something that these books, there's so much hardship. There's so much failure. There's so much <laughs> difficulty, people fighting to, to conquer stuff. And why can't it just be easy? Why can't our girls just read easier books? And this last time this happened, I said, well, could you name one? I, I'll take a, re a recommendation. She said, yes, Heidi. Well, I'm like, Heidi was an orphan on the side of a mountain with a goat and her grandpa had to come and find her. I mean, you know, it is about, our experience is about here, um, failure of ourselves or others. And then what's next? Yes. How did we respond? What comes yeah, next? What comes yeah, next? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Case in point, if it was easy to write a novel, every knothead in the world would do it. But writing one and ultimately getting it published, that separates the knotheads from those that are great. I mean, that's just a, that's a, and you could see so that. So you hear what's happening here, right? Yeah. I'm on the knothead <laughs> side for now. For now, <laughs> temporarily. Yeah. I haven't heard the fat lady sing, okay. so, okay? <laughs> All right, let me give you, let, let us give you four challenges that the book of Ezra Nehemiah has given us. There are many more. But there's four that really stand out as I was studying this this week. And I think they're worthy of our consideration. First one is this. And just so you know, the first one and the last one are the most important. Okay? First one is this. Our real, and some of y'all are not going to like this, sorry, okay? Hey, I got a good idea. If you don't like this, send an email to Colton. <laughs> that would be great. Let him know why you don't like it, okay? That would be awesome, okay? All right, first one is this. My real problems and my real solutions do not have anything to do with my circumstances, my situation, or my location. Say it one more time. My real problems and my real solutions do not have anything to do with where I am. Well, how do you get that from Ezra and Nehemiah? People of Israel, 
when they were in the desert, the wilderness wandering, when they were under the judges, when they were under the kings, when they were taken into captivity, and when they came back 70 years later, what was different about them? I would suggest to you they were fundamentally the exact same faithless, complaining, petty, selfish, hard-headed, rebellious knotheads in every location and in every season of their journey. Moving from the wilderness to the promised land, now we're going to flourish. But they didn't. Going from no king to having a king. Now the good times, let them roll. But they didn't. Being toted off into Babylon. You think, oh, we're going to learn our lessons and change our ways and become these mighty people of faith. But they didn't. And when they came back, God's at work. He's let us go back home. Praise the Lord. Now we're going to be a people of faith. Now we're going to be a people of holiness. But they weren't. They weren't. Read that verse in Jeremiah, please. What is it again? Uh, 36. I'm sorry. 31, 33. 31, 33 says, sorry about that. But this is the new covenant. I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Thank you. And Ezekiel 36 adds to that. He almost quotes that word for word, but he adds, God will give you a new heart. The real problems that the people of God in the Old Testament experienced all were the result that they didn't have a new heart. They had a broken, dark, sin-filled, selfish heart. And every problem that they encountered was a result of that broken heart. And what God said through Jeremiah and Ezekiel is, God's plan, God's solution to your problems, He wants to give you a new heart. And it's not just a new heart like you get a, remember when you used to get a Netflix card and you kept it in your wallet or your purse so that you could go in and get a movie? Not Netflix, what was that place that called? Where you, Blockbuster. Uh, yeah, Blockbuster. And you'd get you a Blockbuster card and you could go in and check out a movie when you wanted to. That's not the kind of heart God's talking about. God says, I want to give you a new heart, but it's a heart that then has to be cared for and nourished and exercised and protected and used. It's, God says, I want to give you a real solution for your real problem. And I want to start with your heart. See, we think life's no good. My marriage sucks. I want, I want to change locations. My family stinks. I want to change locations. My residence, who wants to live in Memphis? Let's change residence. 
My kids aren't happy. Let's change schools. I don't like my life. I'm going to change my job. And I'm not saying that God doesn't lead us to do new things. That's not my point. But I am declaring to you this. The people of God's situation changed all the time. But the people of God's lives did not change because they did not focus on the real solution to the real problem. Such a good point. I'm sitting here looking at two former students on the front row and thinking of, of I teach high school seniors and so often, many, much of the time, they are of the impression that if I can just get to the right college, if I choose the right one, if I get, when I get there, then everything's going to be easier, everything's going to be different, everything's going to be better. And, a and it is different, but a change of location does not ne necessitate or, or bring necessarily a change of heart or attitude. You take that with you. The fears right? come with it, you. The, yeah. the fears, yeah. the anxiety, it comes yeah. with you. So it's not this, this school is bad and, and this college is going to be great as much as who am I and how, am I willing, how much am I willing to change? How much am I willing to own and how much am I willing to change? Yes, thank you. Second point. There is no message in the Bible that is more clear and consistent from the beginning to the end. And that is that Yahweh is the Lord of all leaders, all governments, and all countries. We've forgotten that in America. We have forgotten that the problems of our nation are not the result of the wrong party being in charge. We've forgotten that our nation is subject to the God of the Bible, equally with every other nation on this planet. Psalm 2 says, The nations and its leaders rise up to resist and overthrow God's authority and His plans, but Yahweh just laughs. My grandson comes over to our house every day and very often he'll walk in the house and he'll have one of these little attitudes going on and he'll look at me and say, Lad, I'm going to take you today. And you know what I say to that? I laugh. Dude, give it your best shot. Come on. Come on. Egypt, all of the kings of Israel, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks and the Romans, they all were servants, according to Scripture, of the Most High God. The Bible even has the, the audacity to describe Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus as God's anointed servants. The exact same wording that the Bible uses to describe the king and the high priest of Israel. Luke chapter 2 reminds us that God had made a promise 500 years earlier, 600 years earlier, that when the true Messiah was born, he would be born in a little suburb of, Bethlehem, uh, of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. 
problem was that his mama, right before she gave birth, she was living up in northern Israel in a town called Nazareth. Well, that, can't, that won't work. And the Bible, Luke very intentionally, in Luke chapter 2, says that it was time for the Messiah to come. Caesar Augustus said, I'm going to uh, issue a, a tax on the whole world and everybody's got to go to their hometown to pay it. God was in charge of Caesar Augustus. Romans 13, Paul says that there is no government and there are no leaders that are not under the authority and according to the plan of the God of the Bible. Psalm 47 says the world's rulers gather together with God's people and its kings belong to the Lord and serve Him. Acts 17 says God sets times and boundaries for all nations to rise and fall and their leaders do their bidding. My point's simple today. I listen to the TV and the radio and read the news. Seems like Christians often sort of see ourselves as victims. There's this mean, ungodly government that's taking away our rights and running over us and taking advantage of us and being this mean bully. Like when your third grader comes home and says, Mom or Dad, there's a bully at school picking on me. Am I a victim? Or am I a child of the one that's in control of the whole deal? And that there are no leaders, there are no governments, there are no nations that do not serve the God of the Bible. Quickly, we got to go. Number three. Ezra and Nehemiah, if they say anything, they teach us that God leads His people very uniquely. God does not deal with you like He does anybody else. God does not work in your life, Fred, in a way that looks like anybody else. He deals with us individually, uniquely. His directions, His plans, His priorities, God deals with us and He does not herd us like cattle. He deals with us as unique, treasured children. Case in point. Remember the story of Daniel? Daniel chapter 1. Daniel would have... All these dudes were contemporaries. Daniel, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. They were all contemporaries. Remember what Daniel said when he was told, you're going to be one of the king's upper echelon servants, but we're going to have to change how you look, talk, and what you eat and drink. And part of that is you're going to be a, an expert. What's one of those wine people you like? 
sommelier. Yeah, one of those dudes. You're going to be an expert on wine. <laughs> and Daniel's response was, I would rather die than drink wine. Amen. I love that. Do you say amen to that? Amen. <laughs> okay. Wait. Daniel would rather die than drink wine? What was Nehemiah's job? He was the wine taster. How does that work? That can't, those are two men of God, two Jesus lovers, two Jesus followers. They must be on the same page on everything. But they weren't. Zerubbabel basically said, if you love Yahweh, follow me back to the promised land. But Ezra and Nehemiah did not go. It was years later, and Mordecai and Esther never went. Daniel never went. But can't you just say, all right, if you love Jesus, follow me back to the promised land. God's sending everybody back. But he didn't send everybody back. Some people were felt led of God to go. Some people said, I'm not supposed to go. I love this one. Um, the king tells Ezra, you can go back and uh, help the people of God. Re re restore the city. Ezra said, okay. And the king says, hey, it's a dangerous journey. Let me send an army with you, some of my best soldiers with you to protect you. And Ezra said, oh no. I'm going to show everybody that if you belong to Yahweh, you don't need the protection of soldiers. He'll get us there himself. That sounds very spiritual and good. Amen, Ezra. A few years later, the king says, Nehemiah, you go back and help him work on the wall. And Nehemiah says, okay. Oh, and Nehemiah, I've got some army, some troops that I'll send with you to protect you. And Nehemiah goes, thanks. I'll take them. It's a dangerous journey. You would think you would see people being angry and judgmental and hurling insults. If you don't agree with me on everything, you're not my friend. You don't know and love the same God I do. But that's not what you see among these people. They, they had great acceptance and patience for allowing people to hear and, and understand and embrace God's plans for them and they would have been very different than God's plans for others who equally knew and loved and served the Lord. Such a great word. Lastly, and we're through. I already told you that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Actually, when you read those three stories, all three stories end on a negative note. They all end, they start with problems, they experience some victories, and then they end with problems. Doing things that matter in life building a great marriage that lasts 
decades. Raising great kids who then raise great kids, who then raise great kids. Building businesses. Impacting communities and cities. Changing people's lives for good. Do you know the common denominator in all those things? People that do those things don't quit. People that do great things don't quit. Paul said in Galatians 6, don't stop doing good. God promises that you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. God's job is to make sure we win. My only job is to not quit. Zechariah 4 says, God declares it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but it's by my spirit. Failures are not final. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to make bad calls. We're going to be rash. We're going to be prayerless. We're going to look back in things and go, Dad, come and I do that differently. But the, the thing that decides whether or not we end in victory was my choice to either quit or not quit. And the people in the Bible that ended their lives badly, Samson, Saul, Judas, do you know what defined their lives that caused them to end badly was not their mistakes. Because the dudes that ended great, they had just as many mistakes. Peter had just as many mistakes as Judas. What was the difference? One didn't quit and one did. David had as many mistakes as Saul. What was the difference? One dude quit and one dude didn't quit. We lose not from failure, but from quitting. When we experience failure, when we experience opposition, we have one choice that God wants us to make. Get up and start over again and try again. The lasting success and impact, lasting success, lasting impact, lasting relationships come from not quitting, not letting our problems beat us. The other night, uh, Tuesday night, Shirley and I had the privilege of being a part of a, a deal that, that I'm not going to get into, I don't have time, but uh, uh, Jerry invited a man that m many of you would know who's to speak, and his name is Michael Orr. He was the dude in the blind side, and he's from Memphis, and... Um, uh, it was an incredible uh, deal listening to him. He came from one of the poorest areas of Memphis. And uh, literally, according to him, he literally lived on the street from three years old to the time that he went to live with those Taco Bell folks. Um, he lived on, the, what were their names? Whoever it is, doesn't matter who they are. But until he moved in with those people, he lived on the street. 
And these boys that were, these young men that were a part of this gathering, several of them asked the same question different ways, but they said, Michael, or they called him Big Mike, said, Big Mike, you were surrounded by people in your neighborhood from the time you were three years old to the time you, uh, you know, moved in with that family. They were just like you. Just like you. Same situation, same problems, same obstacles. What? And their lives are still terrible. What was different about you? You know what his answer was? I would not quit. I would not quit. When my life is crummy, I'm going to either quit or I'm going to get up and try again. A wave's real power is not from its size, but from the fact that it's relentless. Waves never quit. Go down to the beach. See, they never stop. They never stop. They never stop. And I can tell you, Shirley and I have been married 42 years, and the reason we're, I have great optimism for the future. But it's because we've never stopped. We don't quit. We don't let it beat us. The problems come. The problems are there. But we don't let them win. We don't quit. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, God's grace is sufficient for all of our problems, and His power is made perfect in our weakness. And Paul says in Romans 8, what shall we say in response to all our problems, our pain, our failures, and our opposition? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since He sacrificed His Son for us, won't He also give us everything else who can bring a charge against God's chosen ones? God justified us, so who dare condemn us? For Christ died and He rose again, and He is now interceding for us. So who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No, none of these things can separate us from God's love, which we have found in Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to make life simple, but I'm just reminding Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah left the world a better place. And the reason they did is not because it was easy, but because they would not quit. And I suggest that if we want to experience the lives that God has for us, part of experiencing that is just our determination. I'm not going to quit. It will not beat me. You will not beat me. My enemies will not beat me. I will not let it beat me. I'm going to continue until I see God do that which I cannot do. Thoughts? Amen. Okay. Thanks for not quitting on me. That's more sincere than you realize.
I could say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> not exactly, but anyway. <laughs> um, we're going to, thank you, baby. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And um, aren't we all glad that the race that the Lord Jesus began in Bethlehem as a little baby, He finished. He would not quit. He completed the assignment that God had for Him. He finished the race that God had given Him to run. And we are the better, eternally better, because of it. So, uh, Brandon, would you and your bride... And Randy, I'll just get you and Colton, if you don't mind. Would y'all come over on this side, grab those two dishes, and uh, just do what August and Brandon do. They know what to do. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take bread, which represents our Savior's body, and juice, which represents His blood, and we're going to eat and we're going to drink. There's not a person in this room that hadn't had thoughts at times of quitting. There's got to be something easier than this. Let's just eat and drink today just as a, an appeal to our Savior for fresh grace. You offered me grace when you died on the cross. Would you share some fresh grace with me today? I don't want to quit. I don't want anything to beat me, to stop me, to thwart your plans for me. And that'll only, it's not by my might, not by my power, it's by God's Spirit. So just as an appeal, a, a prayer, God, I'd like fresh grace today. Would you share it with me? Let's just, eat and drink and remember the grace of God and declare to Him our desire for fresh grace. You come as God moves you to. Mm -hmm.